0: Okay, so 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst, the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here today. Um, as Ben said, we're starting a new series this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians, or First uh, Thessalonians, if you're joining us from the States. Um, welcome. Uh, if this strikes you as a bit of an unfamiliar book, uh, then don't panic, you're probably not on your own, you're likely in good company. Um, but also I think that uh, this book has got a lot to teach us, but it's got a lot to encourage us with as well. Uh, what I hope that we're going to see over the next six weeks or so is that this book is a really warm, encouraging letter from a church planter to a, a quite a young church, one that might feel a bit battered and bruised, and he's, it's written to help them, to help them keep going as they maybe feel a little bit over their heads from time to time. So you might notice from the uh, slide behind me that the title for our series, as you might see at the top, is, uh, oh, oh, sorry, the slide before, is Gospel-Centered Church. There we go. And the title for the sermon today is Gospel-Centered Outreach. And this might seem a little bit of a, a confusing title for some of you. I mean, especially maybe some people who've, been in and around the church for a little while, it might, might strike you as a bit of an odd title. I mean, gospel-centered outreach, what kind, what kind of other, what other kind of outreach is the gate church up to? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> um, you know, isn't all outreach meant to be gospel-centered? Thank you, Johnny. Um, thanks for my glamorous assistant. Uh, yeah, isn't all outreach meant to be gospel-centered? At least, you know, the church, the church outreach, that's, that should be gospel-centered, right? And as familiar sounding as that, that word gospel is, it can be quite a tricky one for people to agree on, for Christians to agree on. It's the sort of word that uh, churches get comfortable using quite a lot. But when somebody actually asks an, an individual person what they mean by the word gospel, or gospel this, gospel that, gospel centred, defining the word gospel suddenly gets a bit more like nailing jelly to a wall, doesn't it? I think especially there's maybe two mistakes that people make uh, when they talk about the gospel. Uh, The first one is we talk about being gospel-centered, like it's some kind of jargon, uh, that edgy churches with like clever-sounding sermons. Um, You know the ones that all seem to have the same plot twist at the end? You know, like it was was Jesus the whole time. Um, (laughs) They're they're gospel-centered. Um, the other thing you can do, though, is um, we can talk about the gospel when we talk to our friends who aren't yet Christians, and then we, when we spend time with our Christian friends, we quickly move on to like, really serious things like like discipleship and holiness. We stop talking about the gospel, and then we start talking about other things, more important things. Now, can I say at the start, I think these, these two mistakes are really serious, but I think they're particularly serious because they actually bear substantial hallmarks of, uh, of ch- and chunks of the truth, don't they? After all, if our sermons and our worship as a church sounded no different if we removed any kind of reference to who Jesus is and what he's done, then what we've done is we've lost the essential factor in what makes the Christian story unique. We're left like with this thin gruel of religion in general, and um, I don't think we want that. And at the same time, we also really need to take seriously the Bible's call for Christians to grow in maturity. Great teaching, great preaching, uh, great worship has to be transformative. Or all we end up with is this kind of weird, strange entertainment for academic types. And so, so for us, it's really important, I think, that our church's worship and teaching has to live and breathe the good news of what Jesus has achieved for us. And it has to empower us to grow in maturity and holiness as his disciples. The question is, though, how can it do that? How can we hold those two realities together without compromising either of them? And that is actually what I think we're going to see as we read through this letter together over the next kind of six weeks. We're going to see that according to Paul and according to the Bible, the answer to our question lies in a proper understanding of the gospel. So, by way of understand, kind of an introduction to this letter, Paul and his mates, who you might remember are Silas and Timothy, they've planted the Thessalonian church during their first ever kind of missions trip. They've arrived in this region that we now call, I think, Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki, um, you might have been there on your holidays. Uh, then it was called Thessalonica. So you can kind of choose whichever one you want to use it. I don't, I don't mind. Um, and they've arrived there, but they've been driven there because of persecution. They've been kind of forced there, and but they've used that opportunity to plant a church. They've stayed there for a few months um, and, and started to disciple uh, new believers. And then things got difficult and kind of hairy there as well, and they were driven out and persecuted um, onto the next place as well. And that's kind of the story of... Paul's ministry really is. He's kind of uh, persecuted into fruitful ministry and then into the next fruitful ministry. But at the same time, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they really seem to keep the Thessalonian church in their hearts. Uh, The letter we've got open in front of us today is probably the earliest New Testament document uh, in existence, written probably about 18 years after Jesus died and rose again. And as we'll see, it's, it's a letter that's filled to the brim with warmth, with encouragement, with joy for this church, and particularly because of their growth, their growth in maturity since Paul, Silas, and Timothy kind of were forced out, and you can see that source of Paul's gratitude in verse three. So it says, "It's the Thessalonians' work, their labour, and their endurance that has resulted in Paul rejoicing over them in his prayers to God." In his prayers to God, it's their work, their labour, and their endurance—that sounds great, doesn't it? It's, although maybe not very gospelly it's not very gospel-centered, Paul, is it? Um, But all this mention of work and labor and so on, if we look really closely, we can start to kind of piece together some clues about just what being gospel-centered means for Paul. Have you spotted it, actually, in verse 3? Their work is produced by faith. Their labor is prompted by love. And their endurance is inspired by hope. You've got faith love, and hope. You might have come across those, those, uh, those three things together in the Bible before. Now, if you spend any time at all here in Birmingham, you might have noticed there's a lot of building work happening. Um, it's a bit, I think it's a bit like mold, isn't it? Like you get one, one block of luxury apartments and then suddenly you can't, you know, you can't move for them. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, most of the time you spend looking at these kind of building renovations, they're just like massive piles of dirt you know, like 90% of the time that people spend building these impressively, like, really tall skyscrapers, they're just big holes in the ground. And then you blink, and there's a 17-story block of flats in front of you with, like, this communal swimming pool and a gin. Um, but according to Paul, the Christian life is a bit like that. You, you might look at a mature Christian, like a godly Christian, and all you see is this impressively kind of godly behavior and character... But what's much more fundamental, what's much more foundational for the Christian, and at the same time maybe a little bit harder to see, is that while these things are you know impressive to look at, all of them are produced, prompted and inspired by the faith, hope and love uh, that make up the gospel. Our work, our labor, our endurance are not the beginning of our Christian life. They are the result of the power of the gospel that is at work in us. In in Paul's mind, the gospel is so potent, it's, it's got so much explosive power that every single aspect of our Christian life finds itself solidly inside the blast radius of the gospel. The same gospel, the same power that changes us into Christians also changes us as Christians. The good news of the gospel isn't just the entrance to the Christian life. Nor is it, according to Paul, just words. It doesn't simply come as words that a hearer listens to and makes a decision on based on the pros or cons of what's been said. Look look down at verse 5 for a second. It says the gospel comes not just as words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. I think sometimes it might feel a bit confusing just like who Paul's talking about here. Is he, is he talking about the people hearing the gospel or those who are speaking the gospel? I think verse 4 almost feels like it's about the people who are hearing it and then by the end of verse 5 you get to the people who are speaking it. Um, but Paul isn't confused. The, the truth is that the gospel is both powerful for the hearer and for the speaker. It's backed up and empowered by the Holy Spirit bringing deep conviction and godliness in both the unbeliever and the believer. The same power that changes us into Christians changes us as Christians. And that power is the gospel. That same gospel is at work in the church, and it's at work through the church. I want to put it like this today. If you want to remember anything, remember this sentence. God changes people through changed people. God changes people through changed people. The gospel is explosively powerful, and I think that uh, we'll see the power of the gospel in three particular ways this morning, in this chapter. So according to uh, this passage, the gospel, it, it has a life of its own. It is life-giving, and it is life-changing. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't feel like you have to answer out loud, but I want to uh, give you a job. If you were tasked... With the, with the role of planning the, the Gate Church's next big evangelistic outreach push, our next strategy, the big outreach strategy, what are you going to include? Um, if, you, if you have good answers, you can let me know. That'd be great. Uh, what training might we need? Uh, what kind of a, apologetics should we be br- brushing up on? Uh, do we need to fo- focus on social media or on maybe kids and schools ministry? Or is there another event that's missing from our church calendar? And I think these are all kind of legitimate things to ask ourselves and things that we should be considering. In fact, it probably won't surprise you that I do spend quite a lot of time thinking about those things. But I am convinced, both from this passage, but also from experience, that our church's strongest outreach strategy is for the gospel to take such a hold of us that it takes on a life of its own, spreading from our church community, to our extended communities, wherever we might find them. We could have all the resources, all the strategy, all the technique we wanted, but without the Holy Spirit lighting a fire in us and and kind of under us, according to Paul in verse 5, what we've got are words. On the other hand, we could leave every conversation with our not-yet-Christian friends feeling utterly weak, only certain about how powerless we are. And Paul says that the gospel is powerful enough on its own. The good news of Jesus is explosive enough on its own to do its work in spite of us, in spite of me. Um, some of you might recognize this, especially science teachers among us. So apologies in advance if I got this wrong. Uh, but uh, this is how I, I, I've been thinking about the, the, kind of the, the gospel having a life of its own. Uh, does anybody remember from school kind of how heat is conducted uh, no, great. Well, good news, Johnny, because you're, you're about to get a refresher. So you, what you've got is you've got something, the source of heat, that's that flame, makes this connection with something that's maybe cold at one end. And what happens is it transfers some of its heat energy into it, and it sends all the particles kind of bouncing into each other and colliding into each other. And that energy continues to kind of get transferred across the particles as you go through the, kind of the, the, the thing that once was cold until the whole thing is hot. Even if the origin of that heat, so heat, even if the source of heat is really far away from the thing that's hot, um, the whole thing can't, can't stop itself from getting hot as the, kind of the particles just kind of collide into each other and bump into each other. Have I got it totally wrong? No, you've got it wrong, just collisions. Yeah. Oh, collisions. Co- no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is five out of six. <laughs> five out of six. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> So they, even if the origin is really far away, the heat is inevitably transferred across the thing, okay? Uh, so if you're wondering where I'm going with this, uh, uh, let me tell you something. Uh, if anybody ever asked me what the outreach strategy for the Gate Church looks like, I want to show them this, okay? I want, I want us to be so filled with a delight in and a love for Jesus that we can't help but transfer some of that heat as we bump into other people, as we bump into our neighbours or our colleagues or our kids. I think, I think some people try and tell us, don't they, that we have this choice between maybe like beating people over the head with the gospel and kind of essentially berating them into the kingdom, or just kind of leaving them be and hoping that they'll connect all these invisible dots that we leave that we leave for them by like being nice neighbors and not cheating on our tax returns and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, I want to say that that's a rubbish choice. Okay. <laughs> That's a choice between two pretty useless options, (laughs) okay? The gospel is so powerful in us that we shouldn't be able to walk away from it unchanged. Jesus knew you, and he loved you when you were at your worst your lowest. The creator of the universe knows that one thing, that if I knew it, you would flee the country. He knows all about it. And he shoulders that responsibility for himself. He has taken your broken, your stubborn heart, and he has replaced it with his very own. So that bad as you are, you are not what you were. He is changing you from the inside out, so that one day you're going to reflect his holiness and his purity and his beauty so well that you might as well be glowing. He died for you. He rose for you. And right at this very moment, he is pleading for you before his and your Father. He's doing that for you. For you. And Paul wants us to know that to the extent that we get that, to the extent that we're gripped by that reality, the good news of the gospel is going to ripple outwards from our church into the rest of the world. Our greatest evangelistic need as a church is not, praise the Lord, skilled evangelists or epic training. Our greatest need is to drink deeply from that well of the gospel, to be filled to the brim with the gospel that is not only empowering, but it's also deeply, deeply attractive. Just look down at verses 8 and 9 with me. People are one to a message that actually works. The news of the Thessalonians' transformation has spread faster and further than the Thessalonian church could have ever possibly managed. And this is another vital thing to recognize about the power of the gospel. Let me ask you another question. Uh, What is the ordinary way that people become Christians? I mean, I know that we'll all know stories about people who've put their trust in Jesus in all kinds of different ways. You know, the guy first uh, shared the gospel with me, he became a Christian after watching a video on YouTube. Or a, a good friend of mine, his dad had a guy from kind of London City Mission knock on his door and invite him to a testimony evening with a famous footballer. And he kind of walked in interested in football and walked out a follower of Jesus. And these are amazing, aren't they? But I think that for most of us, the way that God chooses to transform people and bring people to bow the knee to Jesus is as they observe the faith and the witness of their friends in their very real, warts and all kind of lives. For every story that describes an unusual kind of encounter with Jesus, there are a hundred stories of faithful parents, patient friends, who persistently hold out the good news of Jesus, and they back it out, but they back it up with transformed lives. It can be talked about sometimes, like this is almost a second-class conversion as if like a work of God that's so powerful that the literal ripple effects of it can can transform a life is, is it could ever be in any way second class. But look at me just with verses six and eight. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Could you imagine if that was like the reputation of the gate church? Could you imagine if somebody in like Cardiff tomorrow morning said to a mate on the school run, like, have you heard about that, that church in Birmingham? You know, my mate was in Coventry for work and they couldn't stop talking about this gate church. Like they're so joyful. They've not, they've not got a penny in the bank. <laughs> you know, some of their members have come from across the world from like horrible persecution. And Apparently, they're just on fire for Jesus. Once again, to the extent that this is our reality, our witness is going to be fruitful in our community. To the extent that our holiness is tried and tested in, in that furnace of our endurance, we will be effective and powerful witnesses for Jesus. If you don't believe me, then let's remember that the last person that we baptised... The last person we've celebrated the baptism of met the gate church in the discharge lounge of Samuel Hospital. When I left Louise at the QE a few weeks ago, not only had she invited the whole of the staff uh, to church the next Sunday, but by the time I got home, somebody who was in the bed across the, across the ward from her had sent me a text connecting with me because of conversations with Louise. If we want evidence that our witness is tried and proved in that furnace of our endurance, can I encourage you to just talk to anybody for whom Louise's witness has been like a, a, a fundamental part of their being here today? And let's ask ourselves, if it's true for Louise, could it be true for me? Could it be true for us today? In my own health or relational strain or experience of trial or difficulty, could that be true for me? I think it's fair to say that for many people, our suffering or the suffering of others can raise questions and might even be a significant challenge to our faith. But please don't be taken in by the myth that suffering could in some way kind of like invalidate the message of a crucified Savior. There is no situation that is so bad that that God cannot and does not bear fruit from it. And if you're struggling to believe me on this, can I suggest that you look no further than the cross? God transforms the worst, the ugliest of deaths into the most powerful and life-giving and redemptive act of rescue that could ever be imagined. The work of the gospel is not something that just acts as a witness to others and leaves it there. No, it's first and foremost a work in us before it's a work through us. Remember verse 3, faith, hope, and love, they're not just sitting there in the kind of the ether, in the abstract for a believer. Paul says they're effective in producing and inspiring and prompting work and labor and endurance. And that makes sense, right, doesn't it? What, what is better to inspire endurance than a firm hope that Jesus is alive today and that he will one day work everything that you face, no matter how difficult it is, for your good? and for his glory. What could help us keep going as we labor away in obscurity in Birmingham if not love? Love for God. Love for his people. Love for our neighbors. Those ones who are lost without him. Could we keep working if we didn't believe that Jesus is powerful to bear fruit in our community? I couldn't. But not only that, what about our battles with sin? How can we hope to win that day after day after day fight with temptation? Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10 that repentance is turning to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We're not going to defeat sin on our own. We might make half-hearted attempts at change, but we will not experience meaningful victory in our battle with sin by simply gritting our teeth and putting our head down. Because sin doesn't fight fair. Sin doesn't face us from the, kind of the perspective of your willpower. It faces us from the perspective of what we want and what we love. And to, Therefore, to face off against sin in that way is like declaring war on something you're actually quite fond of. Instead, Paul says something, I think it really surprised me, actually, as I read it. Because there's a sense in these verses that repentance doesn't actually begin with turning from sin, does it? And don't get me wrong, repentance without turning from sin isn't repentance, but the first step, according to verses 9 and 10, of repentance is turning to something or turning to someone. We turn to God. Personally, I find that quite hard to put into practice, because I constantly want to wallow I want to wallow in my guilt, as if it, like if I build up enough despair, then I can like take it and convert it into some form of meaningful change. Uh, but despair is the opposite of hope. And so it shouldn't surprise me, should it, that despair is the killer of endurance. I, I remember one specific moment a few years ago when I was battling a particular area of sin in my life, and I just felt like I was never going to get anywhere with it. I felt trapped and enslaved by it. I just felt hopeless to win the next battle, or the one after that, or the one after that. I just remember um, being on the bus and crying out to God, just feeling desperate after another failed battle. And he called to my mind in that moment this assurance from Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Or recognize these words from Jesus? Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, You will be free indeed. If I belong to Jesus today, then I do not belong to sin. If Jesus has a hold on me, then he is powerful enough to break the grip that sin has on me. And in that moment, after crying out to God and him just bringing those words from Romans 8 to mind, I had this realization just of how toothless sin could be. Because against me, against me on my own, it's terrifying, it's overpowering, and I don't stand a chance. But in opposition to Jesus, then it is sin that I can't stand a chance. The gospel is too powerful. It's too explosive for anything to resist it. So here's my question for us as, I, as we draw to a close. What would change look like in our community That might be change in us or change within our community. What's effective outreach to this neighborhood going to look like? And I think at this point, we might expect that it starts with us, right? And that's almost true. But change doesn't start with us. It starts in us. It doesn't start with us. It starts in us. Because change doesn't simply mean more stuff to do. It's not just a bigger burden or a bunch more techniques to learn. As helpful as they might feel, as helpful as they might be, change, meaningful change, begins and ends with having our hearts gripped by what God has done for us in Jesus. It means allowing our attention and our affection to be so totally like, captivated by that truth that turning to idols becomes a no-brainer because you're already turning to God That is what it means to turn to the living God from idols. And so we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray for the spirit of God to move. Not just in our community, but in us. Our witness is to consist of us living lives of authenticity and integrity before a watching world. Both in our endurance and in our holiness. We, We need to pray for that. That is not a work that we can just muster up with just grit and determination. But we do need to commit. We need to commit and resolve to never moving on from or away from the good news of Jesus. I'm nicking this illustration from Johnny Richards, but it, it is not the case that the, the gospel is like the ABC of the Christian life, and then discipleship and uh, holiness are like piano lessons or something, okay? <laughs> Uh, you know, something that's like impressive and nice to have under your belt, but not really essential. You know, every, subsequent, every subsequent step of our Christian life is rooted in and totally made up out of the good news of the gospel. We can't skip the gospel, we can't move on from the gospel, any more than we can skip or move on from the alphabet when we're trying to read War and Peace. Okay, the gospel is like the ABCs, yes, but... Every other aspect of our Christian life is like learning to read. We can't abandon it to move on. And as we finally, as we kind of sit at kind of on ground zero of that blast radius of the gospel, we need to repent of our sin by falling in love with God. And it's tempting, isn't it, to give ourselves like a repentance to-do list? Um, but if we're going to do this, well, then what you might experience, you might experience kind of short-term change, but you won't experience the meaningful and lasting transformation that the gospel alone offers. The power behind lasting change is to turn to God first, not to lifestyle change, not even to like holiness for holiness's sake, because if holiness is kind of separated from God, and it makes no sense and will have no power to change us. if we turn to God and if we trust that in doing that we're going to find lifestyle change and holiness and freedom from the power of sin then we will find the power for meaningful change and if we trust that as the gospel gets to work in us it will get to work through us so in a second I'm going to get ready to pray but can I encourage us just for a moment for us to for for us to take some time to fix our hearts just once more on the one who loves us enough to bind our lives and our futures to him, the one who is powerful enough to use our weakness, our, our limping faith to transform our community, to transform our city, and to transform us. Father, you have loved us Loved us since before we were made, since before the earth was made. You have set your love on us, and you have set good works for us to do in advance. Those things are are from you, they are of you. So we can entrust ourselves and our holiness and our community to you. We can entrust your power to be powerful enough not only to change us, but to change our city, and to transform the hearts and lives of people who are lost without you. And so we pray that you would do that work in us and that you would thrill us with the gospel to the point that we cannot help but speak of the one who loved us like that. Amen.